so if you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Last week, we were in the part of the crucifixion. Uh, and last week in John's Gospel, we covered pretty much everything on uh, the crucifixion of Christ that John writes. I would like to have you turn to Matthew so we can pick up some other things. Today, we're kind of filling in some of the details that John leaves out that the other Gospel writers include. And just to kind of give you a fuller understanding of what went on uh, the morning of Jesus or the day of Jesus' crucifixion. So Matthew 27. But since we're going to be try to be true to our study in John, I will just read to you from John 19, where we start with verse 17. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. Now, Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which would be nine o'clock in the morning. And then from the sixth hour, noon, until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, this couldn't have been an eclipse, as, um, or an eclipse as some have proposed, because it was Passover time. And Passover always takes place during a full moon. And during a full moon, the moon is on the opposite side from the earth, uh, where it needs to be if you're going to have an eclipse. So it couldn't have been a, an eclipse. I believe it was uh, a supernatural darkness. That's what I believe. Uh, almost as if, as one author put it, and I quote, the creation could no longer bear to see its creator suffering on that cross and closed its eyes. Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, that will be three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, and catches our attention because that's exactly what Jesus said from the cross. And that's the Holy Spirit's way of getting us to look at this psalm uh, as it relates to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, the psalm begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ends in verse 31 with the phrase, He has done this. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, the phrase has done this is just one word, asa, uh, used only one of the time in the New Testament in 2 Chronicles 4, verse 11, where it's used to describe how Huram finished the work of the temple that King Solomon hired him to do. With that in mind, we could translate the final words of Psalm 22, he finished or it is finished. And so Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ends with, it is finished. And in between you have Jesus speaking through King David a thousand years before Jesus hung on that cross. Speaking through King David as one being crucified. Jesus looking down from the cross as, it, as he related what he was feeling on that cross and what he was seeing, on, seeing going on around him while he hung on that cross. I encourage you to read Psalm 22 again. You'll get a whole new appreciation for it. But just as Hiram finished the work of, on the temple in Solomon's day, a temple, listen, of literal stones, so too Jesus finished the work necessary to fashion us into a temple, as Peter described it in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, a temple of living stones. We are the temple of God in the new covenant, a living temple that God is adding to every day with living stones, people who are converting to Jesus and receiving him as their Savior. Now, guys, when Jesus hung on, the, on that cross, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That darkness, I believe, was a symbol of the judgment that he endured when he, as Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 13, when Jesus was made a curse for us. He was made a curse for us. 
He was made a curse for us so we could be blessed by God forever. Sin had to be paid for. Sin had to be paid for. Sin brought a curse. And either we were going to pay for that sin, endure that curse for all eternity, or God who so loved us, which he did, sent his son, that whoever believes in him would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. Guys, when Paul said that Jesus became sin for us, and I know I say this a lot, but I don't want you to um, misinterpret what that means. When Paul said Jesus became sin for us, he is not saying that Jesus turned into sin. Oh, he became sin for us. He turned into sin. Absolutely not. God cannot turn into sin. Jesus on that cross remained the sinless Lamb of God who was dying in our place. We have to understand that. He became a sacrifice for our sin in our place. And when he did that, he was forsaken by the Father because Hebrews chapter 1 verse, excuse me, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says that God is so pure and holy he cannot look upon sin, not in a favorable way, not in terms of having fellowship. The idea of God looking upon sin and, and not being able to do that is, is, is really what John opened his gospel with, right? Um, let me just say this first, though. When Jesus hung on that cross and became our substitute, in other words, he died in our place, at that moment the Father turned his face away from the Son and broke fellowship with him. Listen, a fellowship that was perfect and up until that point had been eternal. John began his gospel with these words, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, a pre-incarnate title for Jesus Christ. And the word, the word was with God, John says. The Greek phrase means literally, and the Word was towards God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with or toward God. The Word was God. And John goes off to explain, this is the Messiah I'm talking about. He is no mere man. He is God in human form. And then we continue on, John does it with his gospel. But the idea of the word being toward God, the word was with God, toward God, is, is John's way of saying that the word was eye to eye with, face to face with, or in perfect fellowship with God. And the only time in eternity when that fellowship was broken was when Jesus hung on that cross and became the sin sacrifice for us by dying in our place. Matthew 27, verse 47. Now, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, where Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, some of them that heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Some of those standing near the cross that morning misunderstood Jesus' words. They heard him say Eli and thought he was saying or trying to say Elijah. Now, in the Greek, the word Elijah sounds a lot more like Eli than it does in English. But they thinking that maybe his lips and throat were so dry he couldn't speak clearly. Somebody had the bright idea of putting some wine vinegar on a sponge, lifting it up to his mouth to moisten his vocal cords so he could speak clearly. And uh, they didn't realize they were fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21, where we read, A thousand years before Christ hung on that cross, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now others said, hey, knock it off, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. You see, they were looking for Elijah because of a prophecy God gave to the prophet Malachi many centuries earlier. We find it in Malachi 4, verse 5, saying that at one point he would send them Elijah, the prophet. And so they were looking for the coming of Elijah, especially at Passover. You say, well, why? Because Passover was the feast that celebrated God delivering his people out of the bondage of Egypt. And they were looking for a Messiah to come who would deliver them out of the bondage of Roman oppression at this point 
in the Gospels, right? Even to this day in Orthodox Jewish homes at Passover, they always set an empty plate and a chair uh, by the table there. Uh, and at one point in the Passover Seder, uh, the father gives the youngest boy a cue and he runs to the door, opening it up, uh, because the idea is they're hoping to see Elijah there. Because if Elijah's there, guess who's coming right behind him? Messiah to deliver them. Well, it's a big deal, all right? But um, as Jesus hung on that cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and those six hours uh, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., those six hours were divided into two parts. Two parts. The first three hours were in light, and the last three hours were in darkness. Now, during the first three hours, Jesus spoke three times. First of all, he offered a prayer for those who nailed him to that cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Not long after that, he said to the penitent thief on the one side of him, beside him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then finally, at one point, he looking down from the cross, he saw his mother Mary there. He said, woman, behold your son, pointing to John. John, behold your mother. And from that point on, John took Mary home and he uh, kept her, took care of her in his own house until the day she died. But in each of these statements, Jesus shows his concern and love for individuals. Individuals. Demonstrating that Jesus doesn't just care about humanity in general. He cares about you in particular. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7? Cast all your cares on him because he cares about you. The Greek word for cares means anxieties. Cast all your anxieties on Jesus. He cares for you more than you can ever know. And didn't he kind of intimate that, that when he talked about every hair on your head is numbered, right? I mean, if God takes the time to number every hair on our heads, which has to be adjusted every time we wash our hair, comb our hair, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious he cares about us. He's worried about that little detail. He certainly cares about the bigger things that we are often concerned about. But Jesus cares for us. And listen to this. Here he is dying a terrible death, and yet he is still thinking about the welfare of others. It's amazing. And then from noon to 3 o'clock, as we said, darkness fell. Yes, on Jerusalem and its suburbs. But historical records indicate it might have, effect, might have affected a much larger area than that. The Greek word for land, darkness fell on the land. The Greek word for land can also be translated earth, earth, indicating that the darkness could have affected the whole eastern hemisphere. The early church, Father Origen, reported a statement by a Roman historian who mentioned this darkness. There was also a supposed report from Pilate to Emperor Tiberius that alluded to the emperor's knowledge of a certain widespread darkness, even mentioning that it was from 12 to 3. Now, during the three hours of darkness, the Lord spoke three more times. He said, I thirst. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he finally said, it is finished. When he uttered those final words, it is finished, he dismissed his spirit and died. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down freely for the sheep. I choose the time of my death. My death is completely in my control. And I gave my, give my life willingly for the people I love. And by the way, he loved the whole world. As we have said many times before, the Greek word for it is finished is to telestai. In Jesus' day, a servant would use it when reporting to his master. He would say, I have completed the work you have given me to do, to telestai. Jesus said those very words in John 17, verse 4, uh, just a few hours before the cross. At the moment, though, Jesus uttered the words it is finished, two miracles took place simultaneously. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and there was an earthquake that split rocks and opened numerous graves in the area. 
Now, there was a third miracle that only Matthew records, and it was delayed. didn't happen instantly when Jesus said, it is finished. It was delayed until after Jesus rose from the dead, um, that some believers in him had, that had died and were placed in tombs were suddenly resurrected. Look at Matthew again. Let's read verses 50 to 53. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember now top to bottom. That's important. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I wish Matthew had given us a little more about these people. He just mentions it almost in passing. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> some tombs were opened and a bunch of folks were raised and went into the, the, the city, Jerusalem. Don't ask me what they were doing. I personally don't think they were getting coffee and having a meal. I mean, let's face it. If somebody you know is dead and has been dead for a while and all of a sudden is walking around town, they don't need to say too much. But I, I wish Matthew had given us a little more about these people, such as, did they die again? Like Lazarus did when Jesus raised him from the dead, right? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and he was alive for a while, and then I think the Jewish leadership had him knocked off because they couldn't handle the witness, all right? So he died again. Or did these folks, when they were risen, like Jesus who had his glorified body, did they also have their glorified bodies? And when Jesus ascended back to heaven after 40 days upon the earth, did they go with him? And Jesus leading a group of resurrected saints presented him and, him and them to the Father in heaven. Now, I kind of lean towards that second one. Why? Because I believe... It goes along with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection. I'll just read it to you. We've already covered it, so I'm not going to really get into it. But in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, Paul said, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, or in other words, have died in Christ, right? We know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. What was the Feast of First Fruits? Well, it was an agricultural feast because they lived uh, in an agrarian culture, the Jewish people did. They lived close to the land, and they depended on uh, crops and things to keep them alive. And so God, who called them out of Egypt and um, made them his own special people, they were a, a nation under God, literally, uh, first nation under God, um, and God eventually gave them seven feasts. You can read Leviticus 23, uh, seven feasts of Moses. One of those was the Feast of First Fruits. What was it? Again, it was an agricultural feast that took place in the spring of the year, right during the week of Passover, actually, is what, it, what happened. And uh, barley was a winter crop planted in the fall, and the first shoots started coming up around March, April, the time when the Passover would fall every year. It was harvested, though, in the early summer. Now, you had your, your other crops that were harvested in the fall, crops that we would think of when we think of the harvest, right? We think of fall harvest, but some of these crops in Israel were winter crops like barley. And what would happen is around the Passover time, the first shoots of the barley harvest would begin to come up out of the earth. God said when that happens on the Feast of First Fruits, you go down and you cut, out, cut off some of these uh, first shoots of the barley harvest. You bring them down to the temple. You give them to the priest and let him wave them before the Lord. You're offering them to God as a first fruits of your harvest. The idea was when you put God first, this is what God wanted. He said, look, I have to be first in your lives. And when you put me first, and you're going to do that through the tithe and through other means by which you give me the first of your animals and your fields, 
when you honor me by giving me the first fruits, I will bless you by giving you an abundant harvest later on. And that was the idea, right? And um, so that's what they did. And uh, what seems to have happened, and I'm not sure about this, but I kind of think this is what uh, happened, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose first. You notice in Matthew, it makes it a point to say, after Jesus rose, they were raised. He's always supreme. He's the preeminent one. He's always first. And I think that what happened was that when Jesus rose first, and then as Matthew describes uh, or mentions uh, that not long after Jesus rose, I don't know how long, but not probably not too long after Jesus rose, uh, all of a sudden the tombs that had been opened by the earthquake now were disgorging these saints. They were had been dead. Now they're being have been raised from the dead, and they walk into the city of Jerusalem and give testimony by the fact that they are now alive that Jesus Christ is the giver of life, right? And, um, and, and so I believe that um, when, Jesus rose from the, uh, when Jesus ascended back to the Father, they ascended with him and were accepted by the Father, as of course Jesus was, and they all became the first fruits of another harvest, a great harvest that would be coming later. What is the great harvest of believers coming someday? It's the rapture, the rapture. And so because Jesus rose from the dead and was ascended to the Father and received, and so were this little group of, I guess, um, believers. We know they were believers that, that was resurrected and ascended with him. It was the Father's way of receiving them. It was the Father's way of saying, I have received these. And that guarantees that there's coming a great resurrection in the future. And that resurrection is known as the rapture. As many would come up out of the ground, out of the graves to be taken to heaven. Now, so starting with the third miracle that Matthew records in chapter 27, and working backwards, the second miracle that took place when Jesus died was an earthquake. Matthew 27, 51, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Guys, I'm sure you know this, but earthquakes were not seen on the earth until after the fall after the fall of man earthquakes became a reality and god has used them from time to time throughout the centuries as a, a form of judgment upon wicked people and nations to judge them for their wickedness now let me just say this not to say though that all earthquakes are a judgment from god not true just like god has used sickness after the fall as a judgment upon people and even nations, plagues and things. That doesn't mean everyone who gets sick is being judged by God, though. But God will use these things. God will use some of these things that we have brought upon ourselves after the fall. God will use them, and primarily, he's trying to get people's attention. God doesn't bring judgment because he enjoys hurting people. He loves them so much, he does, he want, if he has to hurt them a little bit now to keep them from an eternity of hurt and pain and suffering in hell, he'll do that. That's not God being mean, it's God being the ultimate example of love. If he has to sacrifice a little comfort in our lives or a little happiness now, which is, this life is only temporary anyways, to eventually give us an eternity of joy and peace and love that we can't even comprehend, He'll do that. He'll do that. You know, Hebrews 12, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 12, verses 26 and 7, tells us that before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth, God is going to shake this planet so violently that everything that is material is going to be destroyed, and only that which is spiritual is going to remain. What does that mean? Everything you do for Jesus Christ, everything you do to serve him, and, and, and work for his kingdom is sent up, sent up ahead, right? So a lot of folks and a lot of Christians who are still serving themselves, they're laying up for themselves treasures on the earth. And someday they're going to be a complete loser. When God shakes this world so violently that everything that is material is destroyed, well, you're, you're going to be a complete loser. 
If, on the other hand, you work to serve Jesus with all your heart now, everything you do is rewards that are being sent on up ahead. And when you get to heaven, you've lost nothing. Those rewards will be waiting for you. So, again, the only thing that's going to remain after God shakes this world at one point is going to be the things done for Christ and the people who belong to Christ. Now, the book of Revelation talks about three great earthquakes that will take place during the last seven years of the tribulation period. The last one being the most powerful of all. I'll just read it to you. Revelation 16, verse 18. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as, uh, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Wow. I think this is going to be a fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave through Isaiah back in Isaiah 24, verses 19 and 20, which says the earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. Can you imagine an earthquake so powerful the earth is cracked like, a, like a, an egg? The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. If you study the plagues of Egypt, each one of them were poured out on a god of Egypt. Today we have turned the earth into a god, a goddess, Gaia. People are into goddess worship, right? So one of the final things that God does is he's going to destroy man's god. And he's going to wipe the earth out. Don't worry, the Bible says he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth and a new city called New Jerusalem. New heavens, new earth, we will live in the city of New Jerusalem. So God's going to fix it, okay? But um, at one point, he's going to really pour his wrath out upon this Christ-rejecting world. Now, the third miracle that happened the moment Jesus dismissed his spirit and died was that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The Holy Spirit makes it a point to mention that it was torn from top to bottom because I believe he was communicating to us that God did it, that God did it. Now, Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And all the Jewish people knew, uh, you know, and so when Matthew makes a reference to the curtain or the veil of the temple, um, all of his readers understood what he was talking about. We might not, or some uh, people living gentiles living today might not get it but let me let me just explain it a little bit the actual temple building now this is the temple proper the temple precinct where the temple sat that all these courtyards where the rabbis would teach their students and think colonnades and walkways that was about 35 acres the temple itself the actual building was nowhere near that large uh, it was fairly large though and it was divided into two compartments the first compartment was the holy place, all right? And the second compartment was the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, when a priest walked into that first compartment, he saw three pieces of furniture. To the, to the uh, left, uh, he saw the menorah, the only light source in that compartment. To his right, he saw the golden table of showbread, where every week, 12 new loaves of bread with frankincense and some other ingredients were baked and put on this golden table representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then directly before the priest, standing right outside the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, there was a small golden altar called the altar of incense. And there would the priest would come after sacrificing an animal for a person that was wanting their sins atoned for. He would come in and he would light the uh, incense in this golden altar and uh, it was as the incense ascended, he would pray for a person, for a, a group of people, or the entire nation sometimes. But that was the altar of incense that was symbolic of, uh, of, the, of the prayers that ascend to the nostrils of God as a sweet-smelling incense. Now, originally, in that second room, it contained the Ark of the Covenant, Holy of Holies, right? Contained the Ark of the Covenant. You say, what do you mean originally? It wasn't there in Jesus' day. You say, what happened to it? We don't know. 
Tradition says that Jeremiah the prophet took it and hid it somewhere for safekeeping. You know, for 40 plus years, he was, he was prophesying the Babylonians are coming. And they're going to destroy the city and the temple and everything. You got to repent. You got to repent. Nobody repented. So as it got closer and closer to when this was going to happen, at one point, God told Jeremiah, don't pray for these people anymore. It's too late. That's pretty sad. It's too late. The judgment is coming, and there's no way to stop it. So some scholars believe that, according to tradition, Jeremiah took that Ark of the Covenant, and he hid it. Now, the rabbi, if you go to Jerusalem today uh, and go to the Temple Institute where they're trying to uh, get everything ready for the building of the temple, which they're trying to get going. They want to rebuild the temple. Some of the rabbis will tell you that they know where the Ark is. It's under the Temple Mount in a special room that they have locked in. And it's true, under the Temple Mount, and I've been under the Temple Mount, there are a series of passageways leading to, to rooms and things. And uh, the rabbis will tell you that we know where it is. And at the right moment, we're going to bring it out when the temple's ready. I personally don't think they know where it is. If they had that deal, that, that thing would be leading every parade in Israel. So I don't think they know where it is, but they like to tell you they know where it is. Okay? Um, but, you know, maybe Jeremiah did hide it, and it's going to be brought out at one point. Let me put it this way. I know where it is. I know where the ark is. You say, were well, you kidding me? No. I know because the Bible tells us where it is. In Revelation, at one point, John looks up and the heavens are open, and what does he see? The temple of God and the ark. So, you know, the ark on the earth, that was just a replica. Remember when God gave Moses Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, Moses was up in the mount, and I'll paraphrase, God says, I'm giving you a detailed uh, set of blueprints for which you are to then build the, ta the tabernacle from. Follow the instructions to the letter because they represent a model on the earth of what is in heaven, my temple, my ark, and so on. So it's up there. Uh, maybe Jeremiah took the earthy one and hit it, but we, we know where the real one is, okay? But let me just say this. The veil... When you hear about the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, you know, what comes to your mind is a little curtain, you know? Maybe a little linen curtain hanging there. You knock it off to the side, and, you know, and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. But let me say something about this veil that separated the two rooms. It was literally a wall of fabric. It was literally a wall of fabric uh, uh, with one layer on top of another until it was built up. Listen, that so-called veil was 60 feet uh, was 60 feet high. Let me get my. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and some believe it was it was about 18 inches thick. It took 300 priests to hang it. Now, I don't think they took it down to wash it, because that would be, you know, <laughs> where are you going to wash this thing at? I think that they just every once in a while got up on ladders and beat the snot out of it with, with something and knocked the dirt and dust off. But it took 300 guys to hang the thing. That's how massive it was. And the veil was a reminder of how sin had created a wall of separation between God and man. Man originally perfect fellowship with God, Sinned, a great gulf was opened. A, 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 and a wall of separation was really uh, enacted. And, um, and this wall kept man from God. In fact, it gave rise to the whole priesthood. Mankind wasn't worthy to enter into God's presence directly. We needed a go-between, a mediator. I say we, talking about the Jewish people, but if, if Judaism would have continued, it would have affected all of us, right? Some of us grew up in religions, where, as I did with Roman Catholicism, where we were not considered worthy to go into God's presence, we needed a mediator, a priest. And so only the high priest in Judaism could approach God to make atonement for the people, for the nation. And then only once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur. But when Jesus died on the cross, we read how the veil of the temple was torn, again, from top to bottom. 
signifying that God was the one that tore that uh, thick curtain, veil, in two. Not man. And God did this because he was saying to everyone, look, you don't need a go-between. You don't need a mediator. Everyone is worthy who receives my son is worthy to come to me directly. It's open house. Open house. Because of what my son did on Calvary's cross. And God wanted to communicate this. That the as of this point, the old ceremonial system was over with. Uh, it was done and it passed away. We no longer needed animal sacrifices or the blood of, of animals, which only temporarily covered sin anyways. Looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would not only die to cover sins, but to take them away once and forever. That was what the new covenant was all about. And again, we didn't need uh, a, 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 a priesthood. We could come, who would be our mediators, we could come to God directly. And uh, that's why the writer of the Hebrews says that we are uh, partakers of a better covenant, old covenant, temporary, got us to the new covenant when Jesus came. And Jesus was now the mediator of a new and better covenant, the writer of the Hebrews tells us. Better because we're all a kingdom of priests now once we receive Christ. We are all worthy to come into God's presence directly. In fact, Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, boldly. You don't have to be timid. Can you imagine if you're a Jewish person reading, and I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, reading this letter. It's written to the Hebrews, telling them that in Christ, they doesn't matter who you are. Any Jew, any Gentile has the right to come boldly, not shyly or timidly, boldly into God's presence because what? Your sins are gone. They were paid for by the blood of Christ. Now, I'm sure a lot of Jewish folks, when they read that, thought this is blasphemous, and they, they just walked away. And... Um, that's kind of what happened with the Jewish people. Let me just say this, though. Um, you might be thinking, how did they know that God ripped the veil in two from top to bottom? They knew it because the priests were in the temple at 3 o'clock when Jesus dis said it is finished, dismissed the spirit, and the veil was torn. They were in the temple offering the evening sacrifices. That's when they did it. They heard this thing ripping. You can imagine the sound that would make. It was unmistakable. They heard this thing ripping. They probably ran into the holy place and saw the thing maybe in the process of God tearing it, or at very least they saw the two halves now. What did they do? They knew it was God. Nobody else was in there. Nobody else could rip this thing. What did they do? Do you think... The, do you think they fall on their faces thanking God for ending the tedious and burdensome Levitical sacrificial system, giving them free and uncumbered access into the, into the presence of God anytime they wanted? You'd think they would have fallen on their faces. What a glorious day to remember now. God had promised throughout Jeremiah centuries earlier that he was going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This wouldn't have been something that would have taken them totally by surprise, you'd think they would have fallen on their faces and said, the new covenant's here. It must be a covenant based on we now have access to God without all the sacrifices and ceremonies and high priests and everything else. You'd think they would have fallen on their faces in total gratitude. But no, they didn't do that. What did they do? Well, they desired to keep their religion intact. A lot of religious people don't want a relationship with Christ because they enjoy their religious ceremonies and sacrifices and whatever else. And that was the same with these guys. They wanted to keep their religion intact. So what did they do? They eventually sewed the veil up and kept offering God religious sacrifices as a way to approach him. They continued to offer him religion. Instead of offering, instead of accepting his offer to have a relationship with him through his son. But guys, from man's excuse me, from God's perspective, there was no more need for temples or priests or altars or sacrifices. Jesus had finished the work of salvation 
redeeming us, purchasing our salvation. He had finished that work on Calvary's cross. And that's exactly why he said it is finished. Right before he he, uh, dismissed his spirit and the veil of the temple was torn in two, he was saying, look, the old covenant is done. It's finished. There's a new covenant now. Sin has been paid for. You can come to me now directly. God is saying through the blood of my son. You remember what Paul said in Colossians 2. He said that you were dead because of your sins. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of all of our charges that were against us. We have a ledger. In that ledger, God writes every thought, word, and deed that violates his law. And it gets pretty thick with some people, pretty fast. And Paul says, look, God keeps meticulous records. He has written in our individual uh, ledgers everything we have done to violate God's laws. If you receive Jesus as your Savior, his blood pays for all those sins. And God simply writes on the bottom of your ledger, Tetelestai. What does Tetelestai mean? Where does that come from? Well, Paul is, um, he goes on to say, Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Paul is picking up on something that I've mentioned before. I'll just mention it quickly. In that culture, when a person committed a crime, uh, broke a law or laws, and they were found guilty, they were sentenced to spend a certain amount of time in the dungeon. And as they were put in the dungeon, the uh, dungeon uh, uh, master, I guess that's what you call him, uh, the guy who ran the dungeon, took a piece of parchment, and on that parchment he wrote all the crimes this guy had been convicted of committing. And he nailed it to the dungeon door of that individual. After that person had finished paying their debt to society, that and now he's being released, the man in charge took that piece of parchment you know, from the door, wrote on the bottom, Tetelestai, which means paid in full rolled it up, gave it to this individual, and he carried it on his person the rest of his life to prove that he had paid his debt to society. Paul is picking up on that and saying that Jesus took our ledger, all the offenses we had committed against God, and nailed it to his cross. And when Jesus died for our sins, the Father wrote to Telestai on our ledger, paid in full. We... All of our sins have been taken care of. There's nothing left that God is holding against us. Everything has been paid in full to Telestai. Now, as a result of this, as we bring this to a close, so we go back to Matthew 27, verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him, some other Roman guards, who who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake, And the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Does that mean they were saved? Not necessarily. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I always believed Jesus was the Son of God who died for my sins, rose again the third day. But I wasn't saved until I received him as my Savior, received him as my Savior into my heart. It does demonstrate that the events of Jesus' crucifixion made a powerful impact on these soldiers. So powerful, I hope they eventually did get saved. I hope we see the centurion standing at the cross that day in heaven someday. I'd like to talk to him. What was that really like? Oh, man, you got to hear this. I I can't wait, right? Um, But guys, listen. These pagan soldiers weren't the only ones standing by the cross when Jesus died. Let me read this and we'll close. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 55. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. The only disciple at the cross when Jesus died was John. We know that from John chapter 19, verse 25. But there were many women that followed Jesus who ministered to him and his disciples as they were traveling around 
you know, preaching the gospel. You know, they needed meals. They cooked meals. They probably, uh, you know, mended garments that had been torn. So there was a lot of women that were there serving the guys while they were preaching the gospel. The gospel writers record who they were. We know that, first of all, there was, as well, Matthew says, Mary Magdalene, um, and it says that uh, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Somewhere along the line, somebody got the idea that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. The Bible never says she was a prostitute. It says that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. That would have been worse than being a prostitute. I can't imagine what it would be like to live with seven demons inside of me. The guy by the tomb, remember? How he all night he's screaming and cutting himself. And Remember the Gadara, right? When Jesus cast these seven de demons out of Mary Magdalene, the peace it must have brought her and the love she must have felt for Jesus. She was a devoted disciple for the rest of her life. But she wasn't the only one. There was someone called Mary, the mother of James and Joses. And many believe this is actually a reference to Mary, Jesus' mother. He, she did have three, uh, four sons. Two of them were James, named James and Joses. Now, even if this Mary is not Jesus' mother Mary, we know she was at the cross. We just said earlier, Jesus looked down from the cross and said to Mary, Behold your son, and to John, Behold your mother. We know she was there. But um, we also know that her sister was there. And I want to touch on this, and we'll close. Her sister's name was Salome. Salome. And she was the mother of James and John. So she was there also. Again, the sister of Mary, and uh, this would have been Jesus, his aunt. James and John would have been his first cousins. Now, Salome was the one who had asked Jesus if her sons could sit, remember, one on his right hand and the other on his left when he came into the kingdom. Just a small request. <laughs> but you've got to understand a Jewish mom. Jewish mom is always pushing for her voice. If you're going to ask him for anything, why, why ask for a low-level cabinet appointment if you could ask him if they could sit one on his right hand and one on his left in the kingdom? Which he said, look, you don't even know what you're asking. It's not even mine to give. It's my father's. But, you know, turns to the boys and said, are you worthy to drink the cup that I'm about to drink from? Oh, yeah, we're worthy. No idea. Isn't that interesting how we're clueless so often? You know, we, we think we got it all figured out. James and John had, or their mom had no idea what was involved in that level of reward to sit one on Jesus' right hand, one on Jesus' left hand. We wonder what she was feeling now to see Jesus hanging on that cross. And not just hanging on the cross, but remember how he was brutalized. I mean, at this point, did she finally realize the path to greatness? The, what the path was to greatness in God's kingdom? Did she finally realize that? Did she understand that before God's servants can wear a crown, they first have to endure the cross? Maybe. Hopefully she got it. Hopefully we get it. Lord Jesus, make us servants. We're so busy wanting to be served. Give us the grace to be servants. The greatest in your kingdom will be the servant of all. All right, let me just say this. We'll close. Those who were there at the cross were there because their love for Jesus was so intense they were willing to fall on the bad side of Rome. They, 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 they were not so scared of Rome that they fled the scene. An old writer said, we fear man so greatly because we fear God so little. But these were all the people that loved Jesus with all their heart. All the people that had followed him for three and a half years and were convinced he was the Messiah. He was going to bring the kingdom. And now they're standing at the foot of the cross watching him die. Beaten bloody. Unrecognizable. Seeing him hanging on the ultimate instrument of shame. And death. What was going through their minds? How were their hopes dashed? 
How were their hearts broken? To see their Messiah now dying on a cross. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier that evening? This is now as they're walking from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. Just before the cross. A few hours. Jesus said, in a very short time, you are going to experience great sorrow. But hang in there. Not long after that, your sorrow is going to be turned to great joy. And guys, that succinctly sums up the Christian life on earth. Periods of great sorrow that God uses to create times of great joy. Where he actually uses the sorrow to teach us lessons and to use us in ways we could never have been used if it wasn't for the trials or the sorrows. And to see more people saved because we went through a trial and now they relate to us. And we can share the gospel and see them come to Christ. There's no greater joy. These people were about to experience as they were standing there the very the, the cross, the very epitome, a symbol of shame, defeat, and death was going to soon become the greatest symbol of joy and victory in the history of mankind. You talk about what the devil intended for evil, God used for good. That's exactly what that verse means. What the devil intends for evil, God uses for good because he is sovereign. You can plug anything you're going through right now, any attack by the devil, political, personal, whatever it might be. What Satan intends for evil, God always turns the tables and uses for good. As somebody has said, this was Friday, but Sunday was a coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. You sent your Son to die for us. And Lord Jesus, you were a willing sacrifice. Nobody forced you to do anything. Nobody took your life from you. We thank you, Lord, for being a willing sacrifice who loved us so much you gave your life freely that we might be saved. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.